0: So the first upload of this episode, there was some wacky stuff that happened with the editing software. Um, I want to thank my listeners for pointing that out. So I have uploaded a new version, and it's still not perfect, but hopefully you guys enjoy it anyway. So thanks for joining me, and here is the episode. Hello everyone, and welcome to Clear Skies. I'm your host Chloe, and I'd like to thank you for joining me. Today we're going to be going over our first astronomy topic, rather than a constellation. We'll be talking about the formation and evolution of stars, as well as their various properties. So if you've ever heard people say that phrase, like, we're all made up of stardust, they're not wrong. So if you've ever wondered what's going on up there in the sky, you've come to the right place. Before we get started, um, I have a little bit of housekeeping. So I know I've been asking you guys to leave us reviews telling us about why you like the show or what could be better. You know, posting reviews really does help the show get out to new audiences. So I wanted to go ahead and read one of our five-star reviews. It says, this show is full of information. Enthusiastic laymen and astronomy nerds alike will love it. The host voice is cute and fun. So thank you, Pokemon Master. We really appreciate the review. And if any of you guys leave us a five-star review, then, you know, it will be shouted out on the show. And I will personally really, really appreciate it. In addition, I do have two new co-hosts as of this episode. I adopted two kittens about a week ago. Their names are Pima and Kaya. And so if you hear any little stray meows or any odd bumps, I will do my best to leave those out of the show. But if you hear them, that is where they're coming from. I'll also be posting a picture of them on our Instagram so you can look at how cute they are. So anyway, let's get off onto the topic. Thank you so much for joining me. So let's get off to the Stellar Nursery. First off, I felt like we should discuss some basic stellar properties. In prior episodes, you've heard me mention color, mass, size, radius, etc., and I'd like to give a little more context to these various properties. The most common descriptor you will hear is the color of a star. That's because it's the easiest to determine, but also because it gives us a surprising amount of information about the star. The color depends on the star's surface temperature, with cool stars appearing in the red end of the spectrum medium temperatures around the yellow side, and hot stars will burn white or blue. Stars emit a broad spectrum of wavelengths, potentially including all visible wavelengths, as well as radio, infrared, and ultraviolet waves, and gamma rays. The elements in the star absorb and emit different wavelengths, and by studying a star's spectrum, we can determine what it's composed of. So by looking at the color, we can get a pretty good guess of what the star is made of. In addition, it can give us clues about the star's size. If a star is still fusing helium, then blue bright stars are larger than the cooler yellow or red stars. This makes the color of a star one of its most useful properties. Now, since we're talking about color and temperature anyway, let's look at temperature a little bit closer. Surface temperature of stars is measured in Kelvin. A dark red star will have a temperature of about 2,500 Kelvin, which is about 4,000 Fahrenheit or 2,200 degrees Celsius. Our Sun and other yellow stars come in at about 5,500 Kelvin, which is 9,400 Fahrenheit or 5,200 Celsius. And a blue star clocks in at about 10,000 Kelvin, which is about 17,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 7,000 degrees Celsius. And they can go all the way up to 50,000 Kelvin, which is about 80,000 degrees Fahrenheit or 50,000 degrees Celsius. So very, very hot. This temperature depends in part on its mass and it affects its brightness and color. Luminosity or energy output is proportional to its temperature to the fourth power. So if two stars are the same size, but one is twice as hot, the hotter star will be 16 times as luminous as the cooler one. So it really does make a large difference. Now, again, with this color, stars are technically classified by their spectrum and there are three parts to this classification. There are eight classes represented by letters, and these go by surface temperature. These classes are split into 10 spectral types, again by temperature, and given in numbers zero through nine, and the last piece is determined by their luminosity or energy output. The largest and brightest classes of stars have the lowest numbers, given by Roman numerals one through five. So a complete designation gives their spectral class and type and their luminosity class. For example, our Sun is a G25. The major characteristic of a star is its brightness, which can be discussed in terms of magnitude or luminosity. Magnitude is a scale of brightness, with the brightest star being magnitude one and the dimmest that are naked eye visible being magnitude six. This has now been split into two separate definitions, with apparent magnitude being the original version, i.e. its brightness as seen from Earth, and absolute magnitude being more similar to luminosity or its brightness if it were 10 parsecs from Earth, meaning you can do a direct comparison between stars, negating its distance from us. Due to this, magnitudes can now be negative or greater than six. Sirius, the brightest star in our sky, has a magnitude of negative 1.46. You can use absolute magnitude to calculate luminosity and vice versa, as they are directly related. Luminosity is a more scientific measurement as it measures the energy output of a star, while apparent magnitude is more useful to amateur astronomers. You can use the classification and the apparent magnitude to inform what you are looking for as you search for a specific star or constellation in the night sky. The magnitude will tell you how bright you can expect it to appear, and the classification will tell you what color of star you are searching for. The brightness and luminosity of a star are affected by the surface temperature, but the size also matters. The size of a star is often discussed in terms of the radius of our Sun. Stars can range in size massively, from neutron stars of only 12 miles wide to supergiants of roughly 1,000 solar diameters. Specifically, luminosity is proportional to the radius squared. So if two stars had the same temperature but one was twice as wide as the other, the larger star would be four times as bright as the latter. Mass is also discussed in terms of solar masses. So multiples of the mass of our sun. Stars can have very different masses and be similar in size, or have the same mass but be very different sizes. This is because the densities of stars can vary widely, depending on what type of star they are. For instance, Sirius V, which we discussed last episode, is about the same size as our star, but is 90,000 times as dense. Another interesting property for stars which is less discussed is the metallicity of stars. It's a measurement of the amount of metals in a star's composition, or any element heavier than helium. This property is interesting as it should increase in younger stars. The oldest stars would have formed in a universe without metals, and when these stars died, they released a small amount into the universe the next generation would have incorporated a relatively small amount and would have released a larger amount at the end of their lives. Based on metallicity, astronomers believe there should be three generations of stars, yet they have not discovered any of those oldest stars without metals. The youngest stars, like our sun, contain the largest amounts of heavy elements, and theoretically this will continue to increase as stars die, release their elements, and new ones form. Alright, so now we know some of the basic properties of stars and how they affect their appearance. Now let's see what causes these properties and how different stars behave over time. All stars form in the same way, so we'll discuss that first, followed by their different evolutions and end-of-life possibilities. Simply put, stars form from the gravitational collapse of large, cool clouds of interstellar gas and dust, called molecular clouds. These clouds are quite dense compared to the rest of the gas between stars, while still being quite sparse compared to what we are used to. The material in these clouds makes up about 10% of the mass of our galaxy. These sections can span several light years and typically contain enough matter to create several thousand stars the size of our sun. Most of the matter in these clouds is hydrogen and helium, but heavier elements may be present as well in the form of dust. These heavier elements are from older stars, which have forged these elements and then died, releasing them into the surrounding area to be reused. The organic compounds, we're still not quite sure where these originate from. Now, if this cloud were just a stagnant cloud floating about, nothing would happen. However, these do not exist in a vacuum and there's a plethora of forces at play. These light particles do exert a small gravitational force and will slowly come together. These clouds are also nice and cool, meaning that gravity can compress the particles within without resistance from the pressure that would exist in clouds of a higher temperature. This collapse tends to happen um, in areas of higher density due to irregularities in the nebula, but some also theorize that it can be spurred by gravitational or magnetic disturbances. The gases are pulled into the densest regions of the cloud, which eventually will fragment into numerous pieces that each form one or more star. This coming together accelerates as the mass increases and the distance between the individual particles decreases, a process called accretion. Eventually, the matter will entirely collapse in on itself with the material in the very center being compressed by the outer material, pushing down to get to the center. As these fragments collapse, they also heat up due to the release of gravitational potential energy. This process keeps the temperature and pressure from increasing enough to resist gravity. The core of each clump collapses faster than the outside and the rotation of the cloud will accelerate. Eventually, the central region of the fragment grows dense enough that it traps infrared radiation and can no longer radiate away its heat, so the central temperature and pressure can increase rapidly. This rising pressure inside can now resist gravity, slowing the contraction. What we have now is a protostar, where the star is not yet fusing elements but is reaching equilibrium. The gas from surrounding clouds will continue to accrete to the protostar, increasing its mass. As the protostar continues to contract, its rotation increases in speed. There's a dust envelope surrounding this protostar, which will begin to heat up from the heat of the core and will glow brightly in the infrared spectrum. The visible light from the new star cannot penetrate this envelope, and eventually the radiation pressure from the core blows away the envelope and the new star begins its evolution. As the rotation continues to accelerate, it supports the gas around the equator of the star, which creates a disc. As this disc spins, the rest of the cloud falls directly into the star and is incorporated, increasing its mass. Eventually, a magnetic field is created and any leftover mass is ejected via two jet streams at the poles of the protostar. When the core reaches about 2,000 Kelvin, the molecules of hydrogen will break apart into atoms. At some point in this collapse, the core becomes so hot, about 10,000 Kelvin, that it triggers a fusion reaction. All of the material that has fallen in will then form a hot, bright star, which will continue to shine as long as there is hydrogen gas available to fuse, and the gravitational pressure pushing downward keeps the center hot and tightly packed. This balance is called gravitational equilibrium and is necessary for a stable star. Once the fusion slows down and gravity is stronger than the outward force, the star goes to another phase of life, which we will discuss shortly. The remaining material around the star can become planets, asteroids, comets, or just remain as dust. Earlier, I mentioned that these clouds contain enough matter to make many, many stars. So most stars do form into multiple star systems, but we're not entirely sure why. The groupings can vary from a few to many hundreds or even thousands of stars. Computer models of star formation predict that the spinning cloud may break into two or three distinct blobs, which could explain why the majority of stars in our galaxy are paired in groups of multiple stars. I mean, even in our episodes, we've seen lots of binary, trinary, etc. sets of stars. Now the stars in each cluster have a variety of masses, with the most massive being rare, and the least massive being the most numerous. The most massive star clusters, with tens and hundreds of thousands of stars, were mostly formed early on in the universe, about 13 billion years ago. These are called globular clusters, and they persist today, although the stars have evolved, typically now being large groups of cool orange or red stars. Hubble observations have revealed subtle differences in globular clusters, their chemistry, and in some cases have shown evidence that clusters have multiple generations of stars within them. While the star is forming, there is a specific amount of gas which remains trapped in the star's core, and that will directly affect the properties and lifespan of the new star. Its fate is determined by its formation. The evolution of the star will vary widely based on its mass. With the exception of the brown dwarf, all of the stars we'll discuss will go on to the main sequence and then through their end-of-life process. So now we're going to go into the lifetime of the stars. So we'll discuss brown dwarfs, then the main sequence lifetime, and then the end-of-life for low-mass and high-mass stars. Brown dwarfs are pretty interesting and may be a big piece of the cosmology puzzle. These are objects that are smaller than one-tenth the mass of our sun, which do not have enough gravitational pull to ignite nuclear fusion. They're basically failed stars. A brown dwarf is heavier than a gas giant planet, with the largest being about 80 times the mass of Jupiter, but not quite mass enough to be a functioning star. However, they do have atmospheres, which are reminiscent of that of a giant gas planet, and they can even have orbiting planets of their own. These brown dwarfs can still shine for over 15 million years as well, but not due to fusion. Rather, they shine due to the potential energy of collapse being converted into kinetic energy. While they don't get hot enough to fuse elements and become a proper star, they do become hot enough for the outer layer to become warm and start emitting light, appearing similar to a cool, dim star. The first brown dwarf was observed in 1995, but they were theorized much earlier in 1963 and named for the first time in 1975, though the name is a little misleading, as they truly appear red rather than brown. Since their first discovery, astronomers have detected dozens of them and are still searching for many answers regarding the sizes and origins of them. They are especially hard to find as they do eventually fade and cool to become black dwarfs but they are very important as they may be the most common type of star out there and they may account for much of the missing mass problem. On to all of the actual stars that begin to fuse their elements. And the first thing they do after being a protostar is to go on to the main sequence. So, main sequence stars are the traditional stars that we think of. It's like our sun. Their time on the main sequence is, of course, again determined by their size and by the amount of hydrogen they have in their core. So, we're going to use our sun as the example while talking about the main sequence. If a star is much bigger than the sun, it will be on this main sequence for a shorter amount of time as it burns through its hydrogen much quicker. And if it's a much smaller star, it will remain on the main sequence for much longer as it will take longer to burn through its original source of hydrogen. But again, we're just gonna talk about this stable section of their lives and we're gonna use our sun as an example. So right now our sun is about halfway through its main sequence lifetime. Our sun has approximately a 10 billion year life, and it's about 5 billion years old. So right now, the sun is fusing hydrogen into helium in its core, and it's doing this steadily. Now, the energy released by this fusion gradually moves outward through the solar interior, either through random bounces of photons or with convection. In general, this energy takes hundreds of thousands of years to travel from the core to the surface, where it will eventually escape into space and become what we see as sunlight. Now, the sun's fusion rate is regulated by its gravitational equilibrium. This balance between the outward push of pressure and the inward pull of gravity is what keeps it stable. And so it will be mostly uneventful until the hydrogen fuel begins to run out and the sun starts to go to its next stage of life. Now this sounds like a short section, but this main sequence lifetime lasts many, many, many years for stars. And after this main sequence lifetime is when their paths diverge between low mass and high mass stars. So our sun is a fairly low mass star, and we're going to talk about those first. So once the hydrogen fuel begins to run out, that is when the sun or the star starts to go into the next stage, which will be a red giant stage. At the point that the hydrogen fuel inside of the star has run out, that means that the fusion also must stop and the outward pressure is going to drop. But gravity didn't change. So at this point, the star will begin to be crushed by gravity and it will start to shrink. However, it's called a red giant for a reason. While the core is shrinking, the outer layers of the star will start to expand. This seems counterintuitive, but there's a good reason. The core was once hydrogen, and it's now made almost entirely of helium, which is the byproduct of that hydrogen fusion. But the gas surrounding the core still has lots of hydrogen that was never fused. While gravity shrinks, the non-burning helium core and that surrounding shell of hydrogen, the hydrogen shell will actually eventually become hot enough to start fusing that hydrogen. In fact, this hydrogen will be fused at a higher rate than the original star was doing in the core. This is called hydrogen shell burning and it generates enough energy and pressure that it pushes the surrounding layers of gas outward. So, the hydrogen shell burning will cause the sun's outer layers to swell in size while the core of the star shrinks down. This has a dramatic impact, and over the next billion years or so, the star will grow about a hundred times its original radius and be even more luminous as it expands to become a red giant star. That expansion will continue as long as that helium core remains non-burning. As this helium is produced, it keeps adding to the mass of that helium core which just increases the gravitational pull and makes it shrink even faster. This hydrogen-burning shell shrinks along with the core, getting hotter and denser. As it gets hotter and denser, the fusion rate rises. The star is basically caught in a vicious circle with no way to regulate or slow down what's happening. This core and shell will continue to shrink with an ever-growing fusion rate in the shell, which pushes the sun's upper layers outward. Eventually, the temperature in the core will reach about 100 million Kelvin, which is hot enough for helium nuclei to fuse together, and which brings us to the next stage in its lifetime. Most low-mass stars go through this entire phase, though the very lowest-mass stars, the helium core, may never become hot enough to fuse helium, and so this phase would be its last, which would end up creating something known as a helium-white dwarf. Now the next stage is helium burning because at that point we are fusing our helium elements. So in this stage, the helium in the core of the star is being fused into a carbon nucleus. So three helium for one carbon. The carbon nucleus has slightly less mass than three helium, which means that there is energy being released. Due to something called degeneracy pressure, the onset of this helium fusion happens rapidly but does not cause the core to inflate. So it gets very, very hot, skyrockets the rate of fusion and it's called the helium flash. This releases an enormous amount of energy into the core. In a matter of seconds, the temperature rises so much that thermal pressure again becomes dominant and the star can now push back against gravity again and the core will actually begin to expand again. This expansion pushes that hydrogen burning shell outward, which lowers its temperature and its fusion rate. The total energy production falls from the peak it had during the red giant phase, and the star is now less luminous. And the outer layers will contract down from their peak size. As the outer layers contract, the star's surface temperature will increase some. So after the sun has spent about a billion years expanding into a luminous red giant, its size and luminosity will decline as it becomes a helium burning star. Now, it's only a matter of time before the helium burning star fuses all its core helium into carbon. In the sun, this helium will run out after about a hundred million years. When the core helium is exhausted, fusion again will cease. The core, which is now made of the carbon, which is the byproduct of the helium fusion, will begin to shrink once again under the crush of gravity. The exhaustion of this core helium will cause the sun to expand just again. Same process. This time, the trigger for the expansion will be the helium fusion in a shell around the inert carbon core. So we have the same process happening again, just with larger and larger elements each time. You'll see this pattern again in the high mass stars. While this is going on, the hydrogen shell will still be burning atop the helium layer. So the sun will become a double shell burning star with one core and two shells all fusing elements. Both shells will contract along with the core, driving their temperatures and fusion rates so high that the sun will expand to an even greater size and luminosity than it had in its previous red giant phase. This burning in the helium and hydrogen shells can't last very long, maybe a few million years or less. The sun or other low mass star, they only have one hope of extending their life, which will lie with that carbon core. But it's a false hope for a low mass star like the sun as carbon fusion is only possible at temperatures above 600 million Kelvin. That core will never be able to get that hot. The temperature comes from gravitational collapse and the core simply is not large enough to be heated to that level by gravity. So with nothing left to fuse, the sun or other low mass star will have reached the end of its life. As the sun is now very large at this stage, It has a very weak hold on its outermost layers. As the luminosity and radius keep rising, so does the stellar wind. Observations of other stars in this stage show that their winds are a very important source of interstellar dust grains found in star-forming clouds. These dust grains form because the wind cools as it flows away from the star, and eventually they'll be used in making new stars. At the point where the gas temperature has dropped to one or 2,000 Kelvin, some of the heavier elements in the wind begin to condense into microscopic clusters, forming small, solid particles of dust. This process of dust formation is much like the condensation that occurred in the solar nebula before the planets formed, which we'll talk more about planetary formation in a future episode. These dust particles drift with that stellar wind into interstellar space, where they mix with other gas and dust in the galaxy. Now, the end of our sun or other low mass star is very beautiful. Through that wind and other processes, the sun will eject its outer layers into space, which creates a huge shell of gas expanding away from that core. The exposed core will be very hot and will emit intense ultraviolet radiation, which will ionize the gas in the expanding shell, making it glow brightly as a planetary nebula. In past episodes, we have seen lots of these planetary nebulas, including the beautiful Eskimo Nebula. The glow of this nebula will fade as the exposed core cools and the ejected gas disperses into space. It will disappear within a few million years, leaving the sun's cooling carbon core behind as a white dwarf. These stars are very small, but are high in mass and temperature. So a white dwarf is basically a corpse of a dead star which is kind of sad, so. (laughs) Um, They will glow brightly for a while, as mentioned, but after they cool, they will not emit any light and they will be basically invisible. So now we will move on to high mass stars, which are very important. Um, They do not live as long as low mass stars, but they are the ones that produce all of these heavier elements that we need to survive. Again, low mass stars cannot produce these because their cores just don't get hot enough to fuse elements heavier than helium. The early stages of a high mass star's life are similar to the early stages of the sun's life, but they're gonna proceed at a much faster rate. But in the final stages, the highest mass stars are going to fuse increasingly heavy elements until they've exhausted all possible fusion sources. Similar to the low mass stars, but they just get a lot higher on the periodic table. When fusion finally stops for good, you'll see that gravity causes the core to implode suddenly. And we'll see something that many people love to talk about, which is a supernova. So these stars lead much more dramatic lives than their low mass counterparts. The first thing a high mass star will do once it reaches the main sequence is to fuse hydrogen into helium. It does this through a separate process, but the end result is the same, except that it just does it much more quickly. For instance, a 25 solar mass star will begin to run low on hydrogen after only a few million years versus the stars, I think 10 billion. So as that core hydrogen runs out, it's gonna have the same response, but again, just much faster. It will develop that same hydrogen burning shell and its outer layers will expand outward turning it into a giant star. At the same time, the core contracts, and that contraction releases energy that raises the core temperature until it becomes hot enough to fuse helium into carbon. However, there's no helium flash in high-mass stars. Their core temperatures are so high that they can retain their thermal pressure and counteract gravity. So in this case, instead of helium burning happening in an instant and creating this huge spike in temperature, the high mass star's helium burning ignites gradually. This process of fusing the helium into carbon, which was the last part of a low mass star's life. In this case, it happens so rapidly that the carbon core is left after just a few hundred thousand years. Again, the absence of fusion leaves the core without an energy source to fight off gravity. So that core shrinks, the crush of gravity intensifies, and the core pressure, temperature, and density all rise. These high mass stars also have a helium burning shell, which forms between the inert core and the hydrogen burning shell. This shrinking core gets hotter and hotter, and our high mass star soon becomes hot enough for carbon fusion. This core goes through several more phases of fusion of increasingly heavy elements, but each phase lasts shorter and shorter each time. During this phase, There's a lot happening on the inside, yet for a high mass star, the outer appearance doesn't really change. It doesn't become that big, you know, from a yellow star to a big red giant to a dim star. It basically looks the same the whole time, but it is getting larger. As each stage of the core fusion stops, the surrounding shell burning intensifies and it inflates the outer layers even more, turning the star into a supergiant. Each time this core flares up, the outer layers contract some, but the overall luminosity remains about the same. In the most massive stars, these core changes happen so quickly that those outer layers don't even have time to respond. And the star just progresses steadily towards becoming a red supergiant with no change in outward appearance. One of these massive red supergiants you may have already been thinking of. It's our close neighbor, Betelgeuse or the upper left shoulder of Orion. We're not sure exactly how much mass Betelgeuse was born with, because by this stage of its life, it has lost considerable mass through its powerful stellar wind. But it's certainly a high mass star, like this section's talking about. The fact that it's now a red supergiant tells us that it is in the late stages of its life, but we don't know exactly what stage of nuclear burning is happening in its core. The star may have a few thousand years left, or we may be seeing it during its final stages of life. If the latter is the case, then sometime soon, we will witness one of those dramatic events that ever occurs, a supernova. So let's look at why exactly these supernova happen. Now, the nuclear reactions in a high mass star's final stages are pretty complex and many different reactions can actually take place simultaneously. In the first couple stages, it's pretty straightforward. They're fusing hydrogen to helium, then helium to carbon. But after that, things get weird. So one of these simpler reactions is called a helium capture reaction, where a helium nucleus is fused into some other nucleus. Helium capture can fuse carbon into oxygen, oxygen into neon, neon into magnesium, and other combinations. At high enough temperatures, the star's core plasma can fuse heavy nuclei to one another. So fusing carbon to oxygen creates silicon, fusing two oxygens creates sulfur, and fusing two silicon nuclei creates iron. So some of these heavy element reactions release free neutrons, which can then fuse with heavy nuclei to make still rarer elements. So at this point, the star has gone from making three elements to making lots of them simultaneously in different combinations. This star is then creating all the things that we need to live and all the things that make up all the world that we know around us. Each time that this star depletes whatever element it's fusing at the time, it will shrink and heat until it becomes hot enough for other fusion reactions. Meanwhile, a new type of shell burning will ignite between the core and the overlying shells of fusion. So this star is just becoming more and more layered as it gets hotter and fuses more and more elements. Near the end, the central region will resemble the inside of an onion with layer upon layer of shells burning different elements. Towards the very end, you will have a silicon burning core with iron beginning to pile up inside of it. Now this is important as iron is a very unique element in that it's not possible to generate any kind of nuclear energy from iron as it is from all of the other elements. In all of our elements prior to iron, the mass per nuclear particle decreases as we go from the light elements to iron, meaning that any reactions are going to release energy. After or starting with iron, this trend reverses and the mass per nuclear particle tends to increase. And therefore, nuclear energy can only be generated through fission into lighter elements, so breaking particles into their lighter counterpart. For example, uranium has a greater mass per nuclear particle than lead, so uranium fission which leaves lead as a byproduct, must convert some mass into energy. Iron has the lowest mass per nuclear particle of all the nuclei, and so it can't release energy by either fusion or fission. So once the matter in the stellar core turns into iron, it can't generate any further energy. This iron core's only hope of resisting gravity lies with that thing we mentioned earlier, degeneracy pressure the same thing that keeps atoms from crushing each other. But the iron keeps piling up until even degeneracy pressure can't support the core away from gravity. What ensues is the star explodes as a supernova and scatters all those newly made elements out into interstellar space, which is great for us because then they can be used to make new stars and planets and everything else. So now let's talk about the supernova itself. So that degeneracy pressure that supports that iron core until it gets too heavy. That comes from the laws of quantum mechanics, which prohibit electrons from getting too close together. Once gravity pushes the electrons past that limit, they can no longer exist freely. In an instant, they'll disappear by combining with protons to form neutrons, releasing neutrinos in the process. The degeneracy pressure provided by the electrons instantly vanishes and gravity has free reign. In a fraction of a second, this core, with a mass comparable to our sun and a size larger than our earth, collapses into a ball of neutrons just a few kilometers across. This collapse halts only because the neutrons have a degeneracy pressure of their own. So the entire core then resembles a giant atomic nucleus. Now atoms are made up almost entirely of empty space. All of their mass or almost all of their mass is in their nuclei, the very center. So this giant atomic nucleus we're talking about, it has an incredibly high density. Now the gravitational collapse of that core going from huge to very small releases an enormous amount of energy, more than a hundred times what the sun will radiate over its entire lifetime. That energy goes off into space in a gigantic explosion called a supernova. This ball of neutrons left behind is what we call a neutron star. In some cases, the remaining mass may be so large that gravity also overcomes neutron degeneracy pressure and the core continues to collapse until it becomes a black hole. We have theoretical models which successfully reproduce the observed energy outputs of supernova, but the precise mechanism of the explosion is not clear yet. There are two general processes that could contribute to the explosion. In the first, neutron degeneracy pressure halts the gravitational collapse, which causes the core to rebound slightly and ram into overlying material that is still falling inward. Until recently, most astronomers thought that this core bounce process ejected the star's outer layers. But more current models suggest that the more important process involves the neutrinos that were formed when the electrons and protons combined to make neutrons. Although these particles rarely interact with anything, so many are produced when the core implodes that they drive a shock wave that propels the star's upper layers into space. This shock wave sends the star's former surface outward at a speed of 10,000 kilometers per second. That's fast enough to travel the distance from the sun to the earth in about four hours. The heat of this explosion makes the gas shine with dazzling brilliance. And for about a week, it shines as bright as about 10 billion suns, rivaling the luminosity of a moderate-sized galaxy. These gases slowly cool and fade in brightness over the next several months, but they continue to expand outward until they eventually mix with other gases in interstellar space. This scattered debris carries with it the variety of elements produced in the star's nuclear furnace, as well as additional elements which were created when some of the neutrons produced in the collapse slammed into other nuclei. Millions or even billions of years later, this debris might be incorporated into a new generation of stars. So again, this is that metallicity we were talking about. It increases with each generation of stars. And this is why we truly are made of star stuff, because our planet and our sun and uh, we, we our bodies and our, our world were built from the debris of stars that exploded eons ago. Supernova remnants make up several of the deep sky objects that have been mentioned on this show, including the Crab Nebula. The Crab Nebula is one that is studied quite a lot as these supernova remnants can tell us a lot about the life cycles of stars. This particular expanding cloud of debris has a spinning neutron star at the center of it, proving that supernova really do create neutron stars. We can also observe this remnant over years and see that the nebula is growing larger at a rate of several thousand kilometers per second, and we can trace the nebula's birth back to somewhere around AD 1100. There are even records from Chinese observers which recorded a guest star near this location on July 4th of 1054, which was almost undoubtedly the supernova that created this nebula. The last supernova in our galaxy was in 1604, but today astronomers routinely discover supernova in other galaxies as well. The nearest one, and the only one close enough to be visible to the naked eye, happened in 1987. This star was very creatively named Supernova 1987A, as it was the first one to happen that year. And it was the explosion of a star in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is a small galaxy that orbits the Milky Way, and it's visible from the southern latitudes. The Large Magellanic Cloud is about 150,000 light years away, so this star actually exploded about 150,000 years before it was seen by us. Since we hadn't seen a supernova in. 400 years, it provided a unique opportunity to study a supernova and its debris in detail from the beginning. Astronomers from all over the planet traveled to the southern hemisphere to observe it, and several orbiting spacecraft added observations in many different wavelengths of light. We were even able to use older photographs from before the supernova to see what exact star had exploded. It was actually a blue star, not a red supergiant as was expected. The most likely explanation is that the star's outer layers were unusually thin and warm near the end of its life, changing its appearance from that of a red supergiant to a blue one. This surprising color makes it clear that we do still have a lot to learn, but most of the other theoretical predictions of stellar life cycles were matched by observations of this supernova. Neutrino detectors in Japan and Ohio were also able to detect a large burst of neutrinos, which confirmed that The stellar core does undergo sudden collapse, which is pretty cool as these are famously hard to detect particles. So that is how all of the stars in the sky go from birth to death. But one thing you may still be thinking is, our sun is a star. It's going to explode and die. So what does that mean for those of us living here on Earth? Well, fortunately, most of us will be gone before any of that happens. But it isn't just when the Sun finally dies that we'll be affected. The consequences will begin when the Sun first enters those final stages of life, once it's no longer on the main sequence. The Sun will be fine and shine steadily for about 5 billion more years in its hydrogen-burning life, and will even become more luminous with time. But this rise in luminosity will be small compared to what happens in that red giant stage which will probably be enough to cause a runaway greenhouse effect here on Earth. That will be about one to four billion years from now, so we probably don't need to worry about it, but it will make the Earth's oceans boil away. The temperature on Earth will rise even more dramatically when the sun finally exhausts its core supply of hydrogen somewhere around the year five billion AD. Things will get steadily worse as the sun grows into a red giant over the next 100 million years. Just before that helium flash, the Sun will be more than a thousand times as luminous as it is today, and this huge luminosity will heat Earth's surface to more than a thousand Kelvin. So any surviving humans probably won't be surviving anymore. Unless we have all followed Jeff Bezos' example and flown off into space. But these consequences will spread through the entire solar system, Saturn's moon Titan will actually go from its current temperature, which is well below freezing, to about the current temperature of Earth. It'll be quite temperate. After that helium flash, the sun will shrink and cool, which will make a temporary stop in the incineration of the Earth, but we'll all be dead by then anyway. And this will only last about 100 million years before things get even worse. After exhausting that core helium, the Sun will expand during its last million years. The luminosity will soar to thousands of times what it is today, and its radius will grow to nearly the present radius of Earth's orbit, so large that solar prominences might just lap at the Earth's surface. Eventually, the Sun will eject its outer layers as a planetary nebula that will engulf Jupiter and Saturn and drift on past Pluto out into space. If Earth isn't destroyed, Its charred surface will be cold and dark in the faint, fading light of the white dwarf that the sun will then become. So let's just be glad that we don't live forever because I personally don't want to see or worry about any of that. So that is all I have for you guys today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I really hope that you guys tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your classmates, whoever, about this show, if you think that they will like it. Everyone likes astronomy, so just let them know. Also, please do leave us a review as those are the best way to help get this show in the hands of new listeners. Um, and they make me feel really good. So <laughs> I just like hearing y'all's feedback. So you can also send any corrections, questions, suggestions, or anything else you like to our Instagram. It's at with Chloe. That is Chloe with a C, C C-H-L-O-E. So I hope you guys have enjoyed it, and I will see you guys next time for my very favorite constellation. Clear Sky is written and edited by me, Chloe, but it is also quality and fact-checked by fellow astronomer and my best friend Skylar Self, and by professional nerd Robbie Hunt.